I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Conventional Soldier, a military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Welcome to the Unconventional Soldier podcast. Our guest today is Zach Ulrich, a former US Army Ranger who served with 75th Ranger Regiment. For those that don't know, this regiment is a lethal, agile and flexible force capable of conducting many complex joint special operations missions. They are the U.S. Army's premier direct action raid capability. Each of the Ranger battalions is always combat ready, mentally and physically tough, and prepared to fight globally. Their capabilities include airborne and air assault operations, such as seizing key terrain, such as airfields, destroying strategic facilities, capturing or killing enemy combatants, and reconnaissance. The regiment remains an all-volunteer force with an extensive screening and selection process, followed by combat-focused training. On this episode, we'll cover the unit's history, the role in the past and in the present, the selection process, and operational deployments. And as always, we'll finish off with Desert Island Dits with Zach's choice of book, film, and luxury item. So, Zach, thank you for coming on the pod. And as usual, we'll start off with our guest's Backstory and how you ended up serving in the Rangers. So tell yeah, us the journey. Thanks for having me on, guys. So, man, I kind of you know grew up kind of always admiring the military and uh, you know reading a lot um, about history about the U.S. Army and like World War II. I was really big into World War II history, and then around twelve thirteen, I kind of I don't know what how I you know looked into it, but I was like, oh, I want to go. I want to join the army. I want to go SF. And, you know, that was kind of what I pursued for a little bit. And then I realized that, uh, it takes a little bit more to get into SF straight out of high school. I wasn't interested in, uh, in waiting around and being in a regular army unit. And then I learned about army Rangers and how you could get 
into a special operations unit pretty quickly um, with a relatively shorter selection process and you could be deployed, you know, very quickly after that. And that's what I was, you know, initially interested in me in the regiment. And then obviously learning about its history was really, was really cool for me. And then just the, uh, the challenge of it was what, what really got me. Were you aware of things like uh, Black Hawk Down uh, around about this time? Is that sort of the modern iteration of Rangers? Mm -hmm. Was that firmly at the front of your mind? Oh, I mean, a little bit. I want to say that it, it took me a while. I think I'd already signed my uh, my contract before I saw the movie, but I was uh, familiar with the uh, the Battle of Mogadishu, um, and uh, kind of you know grew up hearing about the uh, the actions in the GWAT. Like I was I was a later and uh, joined later um, in the GWAT, so I kind of knew about Rangers' involvement in uh, in some higher profile raids and whatnot. Um, during like the uh, the early years of that. So, what army have you got? Family history with the armed forces. Yeah, so my both of my grandfathers served. Uh, my maternal grandfather he served at the end of World War II. Um, he enlisted right towards the end and was was fortunate enough to not be involved in any uh, super heavy fighting. He was initially slated to to go to Japan um, before they dropped the bombs. And then he ended up getting sent to Europe and he was an engineer. So he helped kind of rebuild and uh, was involved with the rebuilding process in Germany before he was discharged. And then my paternal grandfather was a medic during the Korean War. And he didn't really like to talk about his uh, his time there. Um, he was he was pretty quiet about it. And the whole family really doesn't know a whole lot about it. Um, so it might be safe to assume that he saw some stuff that he just you know wasn't wasn't super comfortable with. And then uh, way back into into the 1800s, I'm related to uh, Lord Horatio Nelson, so it's cool that I'm on a on a British podcast with that kind of that kind of lineage. <laughs> You're making me and Kev look like poor uh, relations in comparison, there, Zach. <laughs> we, we are poor relations, darling. <laughs> you mentioned earlier you, you want to be a ranger from quite early on, but what was driving you to that selection process? Honestly, like I said before, it was, the, it was the challenge of it. It was the the fact that I kind of had a desire to go and see, you know, conflict on some level. And I was like, the, the surefire way to get there is with is with Ranger Regiment. And, you know, they have a really, a really high survivability rate, like um, with our medical program, like every Ranger that's injured that can survive is going to survive um, based on how, how well trained our medics are and how well trained uh, everyone else in the assault force is. Um, so I was like, all right, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it right and, uh, and go with an elite unit. And I wasn't going to settle for, uh, for washing out or for quitting to go to, to a regular lug unit or, uh, a regular airborne unit where I knew that they weren't going to deploy and see, and see much. Um, so that was, that was probably my main motivation. Okay. And I know listening to your podcast and we'll talk about where people can listen to them later on but uh, I gather from your podcast you're extremely motivated I mean you're a track athlete at school 400 meters I think was your speciality was that correct yeah yeah for but uh, I remember you saying that outside track season you were uh, training with a rucksack uh, and you even got a pipe made up to simulate a rifle but twice the weight probably more on m60 weight than a <laughs> m16 weight and uh, so you're obviously highly motivated and you taught just tell that story you mentioned on your podcast about uh, the special forces guy that saw you running out with a, a rock one day. 
Yeah. So uh, through my senior year of high school, um, I followed the uh, official, I guess, uh, Ranger Assessment Selection Program uh, prep. And it calls for about two rucks um, a week, one a shorter one and like a longer one. And I had yeah an old Alice pack um, with about 45 pounds. And then I would throw Camelback in there. And then I had some metal shelving pieces that were all taped together and yeah like like you said it was about it was about 15 16 pounds so about double the weight of you know a rifle um and i was i was on the back stretch on i think one of my shorter ones i don't really remember um but i saw this truck coming up on the other side of the road and then he did a quick ue and i was like oh man this guy's this guy's gonna have something to say to me and it it was a uh 19th special forces guy because uh i live i was out in utah at the time and there's a a national guard sf unit and so he, he gave me a quick talk. He's like, Hey man, like, what are you, what are you out here training for? Cause obviously like I was young, like I looked young and probably was wearing something wrong. And he's like, all right, that guy's not in, but he's out there, you know, rucking around like that guy's doing something for something. And he kind of was just talking to me. He's like, I was like, yeah, I got a Ranger contract and, uh, you know, I'm going, you know, in the, in the summer. And, uh, he was like, good, that's good stuff. He's like, you should try out for SF though. And I was like, yeah, maybe, I don't know. Um, but he, it was a little bit, bit of motivation, um, to have contact with someone who was already in doing that kind of stuff and to get, you know, motivation from them, which I thought was cool that he would uh, take the time to to talk to someone like me. Yeah, that's pretty good. And, and you mentioned there, uh, he was, you know, special forces, but, uh, the American army or American forces, uh, divide their special operations and special forces into tiers and you know there's tier one tier two where do the rangers sit in that tier system they sit at tier two um there is an element within the ranger regiment that is tier one um but we are we're tier two and tier one tends to be seal team six and delta force if i'm correct is that right yep and then uh for rangers it's the uh, regimental reconnaissance company or rrc and they're they're a pretty small group. There's not really a whole lot out about them, um, just because they they are so small. Um, but they are they're technically designated as a tier one asset. We'll get onto selection process in a minute, but I just think probably wise that we just cover a bit of the history. So most people have heard of the Rangers, which is a proud lineage all the way back to the Revolutionary War and of course World War Two. Uh, listeners will be familiar with the battle fought in Mogadishu by Task Force Ranger, which I think was 3rd Battalion of 75th Ranger Regiment. Yep. Uh, that was made famous in the film Black Hawk Down. And of course, you've got uh, operations during the global, global War on Terror. Can you say it? Global War on Terror, uh, which Zach referred to earlier as GWAT. And there's some epic engagement to that. It's the battle at Takagar, also known as Roberts Ridge, during Operation Anaconda can attest. And we'll, that's my book choice later on, so we'll cover that battle in a bit more depth towards the end of the podcast. So, Zach, over to you then as a resident expert about a little bit of the history of the unit leading up to its present-day incarnation. Yeah, for sure. So we're we're very uh, particular about our history. Like It's part of our selection process, actually, is a history test, um, which is kind of interesting. And you're, you're kind of expected to know a lot. So we do, we do have a long and uh, proud lineage and we go all the way back to the American Revolution and uh, a little bit prior to that with a man named uh, Robert Rogers, who's considered to be like the forefather of the Rangers, Ranger Regiment. And he was technically a Brit as well. So, you know, there's another homage to y'all. <laughs> and he uh, served during the French and Indian Wars, French and Indian Wars. And he came up with uh, some standing orders and some rules for ranging that are still, 
you know, part of our, like in our blue book and uh, in the Ranger handbook with uh, his 19 well, standing orders. Strangely enough, when I was in the jungle many years ago, we still used those same rules for jungle warfare. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we, we, we just adapted them and they were taught on, on the jungle course as well because they're oh, still yeah. as applicable today as they were then. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the big ones is uh is don't be sleeping during dawn. So like when you're in a patrol base, like I think it's it's pretty common for even an, even an outside of ranger units to to have a stand to um it you know before morning nautical twilight and end evening uh nautical twilight. And then after that, um, we had some some rangers that were I guess you know rangers in the uh, Civil War, and the most notorious of that was Francis Marion or the Swamp Fox, who was down in South Carolina and carried out guerrilla-style attacks on Union troops. And then the first real incarnation of the Ranger Battalions today um, actually came about in 1942 in Ireland with the uh, standing up of 1st Ranger Battalion. And it was it was very closely modeled after the British commandos of the time and like the, the predecessors to the SAS. And... First Ranger Battalion was actually the first group of Americans to see combat in World War II in uh, North Africa. After they had their successes, um, they stood up Third and Fourth Ranger Battalions, and they also saw action across North Africa and into Italy. And then First and Third were out, like you know, just killed uh, and killed off during uh, the Battle of Cisterna in Italy in 1944 before they made it into the rest of mainland Europe. And then you had 2nd and 5th Battalions, um, which are kind of famous for their role in D-Day. And that's where our, one of our mottos comes from, uh, Rangers Lead the Way. And 2nd Battalion, of course, is uh, is famous for seizing Point du Hoc um, in, a, in a pretty gnarly battle there where they scale the cliff face straight into machine gun fire. And then you have 6th Ranger Battalion, who served in the Pacific. They're the only Ranger Battalion that was in the Pacific. And one of their most famous exploits was the freeing of American POWs who had survived the Bataan Death March in the Cabatatuan Raid, which was like, I want to say it was like a 30 or 40 mile walk in and then a 30 or 40 mile walk out. Um, so just absolute, just tough mission. And then there was, there was Ranger companies in Korea. Um, they didn't have a whole lot to, to do in that conflict, I want to say. And then, in Vietnam, there were 15 companies of Rangers who were attached to, I think, regular infantry battalions, and they they carried out more like the long range reconnaissance and uh, and raids. And then after Vietnam, they decided to formally install or uh, stand back up, I guess, Ranger battalions. And so they stood up First Ranger Battalion and Third Ranger Battalion, and then uh, Second came along after which came first it was uh granada um when the successes of first and third were kind of well televised and well uh well talked about and so yeah and that's that's the current configuration today with three line battalions uh headquarters element and then we just stood up a few years ago a, a military intelligence battalion so if you're ever crossing europe zach's well point the hawk's well worth a visit because the gun emplacements are still there uh, and you can, sh- you know, it's amazing when you stand on that cliff edge and think about those guys climbing yeah, those I've, cliffs. They've, I've had uh, some buddies in my platoon who were out there for the uh, for the anniversary, and they did they did a big uh, for the seventy fifth anniversary. They did a big climb 
um, with guys in old Ranger kit and then the, the new Ranger kit, which was uh, really cool. And I, I wish I would have been able to be a part of that, but uh, they we only could send over like five or six dudes and I didn't make the list. <laughs> Unlucky. Yeah. So we mentioned Black Hawk down earlier on in Mogadishu. I think for most Brits, as I said earlier, that's where they would probably recognise the Rangers being involved. And I might be talking out of turn here, but to me, if people want to know that it's sort of a classic, if there's such a thing, Ranger mission, that that was probably it, where they're supporting uh, Delta guys going in to do a, do a snatch essentially on enemy combatants, and the Rangers were there providing the the force to to enable that raid to go ahead. And we'll talk about fitness and all that later on. But one thing struck me with that whole film, and I know it's just a film, but um, certainly the fitness side of it came out at that end where they're doing that withdrawal run back to the the base because the the Pakistani army, they didn't have enough vehicles to get them out. And I think, you know, fitness there really just showed the way for that intense training that the Rangers do. Especially Mm -hmm. after being in combat all, you know, for a long, sustained period. So you must be exhausted anyway. And then for out to exfil on foot, uh, yeah. that must yeah. be a lot of pressure. We uh, we hold an annual uh, Mogadishu Mile event um, at headquarters in uh, in Benning because of that, um, just to kind of remember and uh, honor the sacrifices made that day. Oh, is that to replicate that last sort of dash out of the mm-hmm. combat area? Mm-hmm. They right have uh, they have like I don't I won't call them artifacts, but like uh, they have like some of the machine guns and stuff that were actually on that mission still and they keep them and then they run with them every year um the company of 375 that was involved in that battle like we'll we'll hold on to those and then every year they uh they carry those weapons um in remembrance during that run the role what is the role today of uh, the ranger regiment then yeah so uh as, as said earlier we're the uh the premier direct action raid force and uh, kind of like America's quick reaction for us, honestly. Um, and at all times, there's a there's a company of Rangers that can be anywhere in the world within 18 hours. Um, we've kind of you mentioned uh, that Black Hawk Down is kind of a classic Ranger mission. And initially, yeah, like that's kind of what we were known for is like being uh, being Delta's blocking force. Um, but during the GWAT and with uh, just how how large and large scale that kind of conflict was between Iraq and Afghanistan. We kind of came into our own um, in terms of being able to run our own operations and, and large scale, large scale raids, and uh, we kind of you know made a name for ourselves as being able to capture high value targets and uh, and do those larger platoon size or company size movements and and uh, operations, which Delta really doesn't have the the capabilities of. Um, they can do you know more platoon style raids, but anything beyond that, like they're calling us for help and uh, to be the primary on those. Well, you, you can scale up, can't you? Obviously from, a, like you say, from a platoon or a section through mm-hmm. to a regimental action. So you were saying there's, there's three, there's three battalions, plus you've got a new battalion. You were saying about the military intelligence. Yeah. So we have, what, uh, what do they do? Uh, so our MIB is, uh, I honestly, they're, they're pretty new, but they're, uh, they're basically, it's, regiment's attempts at creating our own internal intelligence asset essentially um for our own targeting in a our mission set without having to rely on outside sources it's interesting you say about the role changing during the global war on terror in afghanistan and iraq because something kevin i have touched on for british forces is 
Loosely, you could call it the democratization of soldiering in the respect that prior to global war on terror, out of area operations and largest operations were sort of the remit of the Royal Marines and the airborne forces of the parachute regiment in the British Army. But obviously, the intensity of operations and the number of tours going round, it led to more uh, normal, if you want, normal inverted commas regiments being put in there. And they proved that they could cope just as well as these other battalions that had traditionally been used for that role. So we did see a little bit of that effect throughout the British Army as well. You know, the, the, the things that were used to be primarily special forces were then sort of passed down the line a little bit because they realised that other units could do them. Yeah, and I think, like you say, one one special forces unit can't do everything. You've got to pass that burden. And uh, like Colin says, the traditional commando brigade and the airborne brigades who were usually the rapid reaction, um, other people were doing it. And like you say, they, they skilled up and they were able to deliver effect. So Zach then, um, obviously Rangers then, as we've already established, a highly skilled unit. And to get those skills, you need the right people. So what is the selection process to get into the regiment? And what is the difference between Ranger School and serving with the 75th Regiment? Yeah, so uh, to get into Ranger Regiment, you have to pass uh, Ranger Assessment and Selection 1 as a junior enlisted or Ranger Assessment and Selection 2 as a officer or uh, more a little bit more senior enlisted. And so for me, I, as I went, you know, straight in out of high school, I was obviously, you know, like a like a private, you know, E1, E2. And so I went to RASP 1. And the the thing about RASP is it's because you can, you're going straight to a Ranger Battalion. And like I said and mentioned, like you could be anywhere in the world within 18 hours upon straight um, about, you know, right after showing up. So it's equal part selection as well as, you know, a little a bit of training to get you to a baseline of competency before you make it to your battalion. So the first four weeks of, of RASP, it's a total of eight weeks. And the first four weeks are more of the, the selection part. You do a PT test and then other physically demanding events. There's a, a couple of rucks and a, and a run that you do that are, you know, designed to kind of weed people out. And then you're, you know, a little bit of sleep deprivation and, and uh, games by cadre. And then the second week you do a ruck out to a remote spot on Fort Benning in Georgia called Cole Range, where you conduct two iterations of land nav per day, one in the morning and then one at night. And then in between that and into the night, you're just getting your uh you're just getting smoked and uh and playing games and uh you know getting hazed essentially. You don't get much sleep, you get maybe a couple hours every night. And this is where the majority of people end up quitting. This is kind of like our equivalent for Navy SEALs like their hell week. This is like essentially Rangers like Hell Week. After you make it through that, you uh, go into week three where you learn to fast rope and you do some medical training. Um, this is where you learn the Ranger First Responder Program, which is you know what really enables our battlefield survivability, getting everyone up to a baseline knowledge of you know emergency medical interventions. And then weeks four through seven is when you you know you start learning how to shoot. They kind of like swap swap roles and turn into more instructors and uh, than people trying to get you to quit. Um, because you are essentially, if you make it to this point, like your, your odds are, are very good at making it the rest of the way through. So they, they're being more mentoring than, uh, than just trying to get you to wash out. So you learn how to shoot CQB close quarters, battle rifle and pistol, and you do a breaching week. So you learn how to, to manipulate breaching shotguns, mechanical tools, explosives. You learn how to build explosives, um, which is pretty unique, um, that you get 
hands-on with those so early on in your career. And then, um, yeah. And after that, like you graduate and, and you get sent to your, your ranger battalion. Listen to your podcast. You, you said some interesting stuff that a lot of British soldiers will be familiar with when they go on any type of selection course in that a vast majority of the guys that you went on the course with failed themselves rather than f- were failed, if, if that makes sense. So a lot of them just mentally couldn't cope with it and withdrew. So it's, it's interesting that that's a familiar feature in the British Army as well. Most people end up voluntarily withdrawing or V-dubbing, um, as the acronym is called. And it averages, it can fluctuate depending on the needs of the battalion. Like if a battalion's hurting for dudes, They'll be like, all right, you know, maybe go a little bit easier on this class so they don't, you know, wash all the way out. Uh, but I would say it averages around a 50% attrition rate. We had, I think it's 165 that you start with, and we graduated 75. So a little bit, a little bit more than a 50% attrition rate. But honestly, the the selection's not not the hard part. Showing up to your uh, receiving battalion is where it gets really interesting. And we like to say that selection doesn't stop, you know, at RASP. Like you're constantly being assessed and you constantly have to keep performing. Otherwise, you're going to get the boot. Um, so after, you know, about a year or two of being in your unit, it's about another 50% attrition rate from the dudes who graduate. Um, and regiment is unique in the fact that we can release people for uh, for not meeting the standard. Um, is It's called RFS. So if you, you don't pass PT test or if you can't, go to ranger school and pass. Um, we can kick you out, basically. There's there's a whole litany of, of things that can get you kicked out, which is which is unique in the Army. It helps us maintain a high level of, of readiness and a high standard. Um, to talk about ranger school, so ranger school is a school run by the, the trading command, and anyone in the U.S. military and uh, partner military forces can attend. And it's a 60-day leadership course, um, compared to a selection unit. So you go to ranger school and you earn your ranger tab and then you go back to your unit that sent you. It's not like a selection course to try out for an elite unit. It's, uh, it's strictly a, uh, you know, a leadership course and a, and a gut check. Going back to the, the selection course, I think I'm again, listening to your podcast, you do something quite unique and the only other unit I've heard do that is the Rhodesian Selu Scouts. And that's after each, exercise or what training package you're doing you get to vote on you, you peer vote on the three best performers and the three worst performers is my correct to thinking that yeah um we do that they're called peers um we do those at the end of rasp and yeah like you say you, you do a, a hierarchy of you know top i think it's top five i want to say it's top three or five and then bottom bottom three or five and you got to kind of explain why why you pick people there and then you also do that in ranger school after each after each phase as well. Um, and you can get dropped. Like they're very good about dropping people for people that um, score below. I think it's a a sixty percent score on on peers. I'm not exactly sure how it's calculated. That's cool. I didn't know that that about uh, the Celis Scouts. I want to say that there's other units in the in the U.S. Army that do it as well. Um, I think that, that peers are part of uh, maybe the Delta selection. Don't quote me on that. Um, but it's, it's something common across these kind of, these kind of units to do that. Um, cause there are, there's limits to how much cadre I can see, uh, you know, they can't be watching you all the time. So it, it kind of helps weed out the people that don't belong. 
Have you heard of that in the British Army, Kev? I've not heard no, of that. No, we don't do it because um, we obviously, on any session course on ours, we set a training standard. You have to meet the training standard and um, the performance of a team is judged as well as the individual. You know, when we I mean, if you think about when we did our course, um, ours was definitely um, select out, not training. You know, people fail for, as you remember, some of the really basic stuff. So our, our selection was quite robust in um, clearing people out. And once you got past that that phase and you went on to the training phase, it was taught as a training phase. You you were expected to make mistakes as well, especially on new skills, because the only way you learn sometimes is to make mistakes. But the idea being to get the objective done. Yeah, I also so. found, as and Zach alluded to it, and some Kevin I have talked about as well, that you get through your selection and you get to the serving unit and there's another peer selection within the serving unit. Yeah, definitely. You know, and uh, if you don't make it within a set period of time and you establish a poor reputation as a soldier, those guys tend to leave the unit quite quickly. Uh, is that something you saw at the Ranger units as well, Zach? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's maybe... It's, it's it's less formal at that point. Um, so it's like an informal competition at all times. And the ones that don't hack it, they kind of get bullied. I, I want to say bullied, I guess, bullied out of it to where they're either you're going to improve because you don't like being, uh, being the target of, of your platoon's jokes and stuff. Or you uh, you end up going to a like a support role within your company, like an arms room Stools. or ammo. <laughs> Yeah, supply, and it's like, all right, if you can't hack it, like that's where you're going to go because no one wants to be around you, um, or sent to a it's the same an army. Same armies all over. Yeah. Same armies all over. Yeah. Someone's got to manage the battery store. <laughs> <laughs> so Zach, once you passed the initial selection, what continuation did you do when you got to your battalion? Yeah. So after you pass, um, you, you obviously show up and you're the new guy. You don't know anything. And uh, people are kind of looking at you through a lens of distrust. They're like, all right, can we trust you? Like you made it through RASP, but, you know, RASP is is short. So, you know, maybe not all of your character flaws have been has been found out. And so it's it's a rough, rough start once you show up to your battalion, once you're a private. Um, so after you spend, you know, roughly six months to a year in your in your battalion, if you're a good enough dude, you'll get sent to ranger school where you're required to pass it, basically. And if you don't pass, you might have a chance to go back, depending on the reason you failed. But if you don't and you get multiple tries, like they can kick you out for that. And most of the time, dudes, dudes pass ranger school. Like That's not a huge, huge issue. Um, so once you earn your, your ranger tab, which is separate from the, uh, the ranger scroll, it's kind of like earning your tenure. And it's, it's a little bit harder to get rid of you at that point. And you've kind of proven that you're you're competent in uh you know mm. you're willing to con- continue on as far as the training goes you're you're constantly training in regiments there are certain events that you have to qualify on every year um there's team level live fires squad level live fires and then platoon level live fires occasionally you'll do you'll do company size live fires you'll do CQB close quarters battles training airfield seizures is something that we is one of our key mission sets that we have to train on every single year. And we'll do those on at the company as well as the battalion level. Um, and those are a, a grueling couple of weeks um, that you dread looking forward to um, every year. Constantly doing this, you know, honestly, it's almost twice a year that you'll do some of these just based on how the, the training rotation and the deployment rotation goes. 
but that's what really makes us excellent at what we do is because we're constantly, constantly training. And then, you know, it's slowed down a little bit, but typically you deploy about once a year as well. So when you're not deployed um, or conducting any of this mandatory training, you have the opportunity to attend other Army schools outside of, you know, Ranger Regiment, such as Sniper School, Dive, Free Fall, which is honestly uh, pretty rare for Rangers to get. You got anti-terror, evasive driver, master breacher, and then there's a ton of other like little smaller, like week-long courses um, that are all really designed to increase your capabilities and lethality. And the intent is that you go to these schools and then bring that knowledge back and train up the uh, your guys below you. Is everybody in the Rangers paratrained, parachute trained? Mm-hmm. That's uh, it's technically part of the the selection pipeline. Maybe not selection, but it's part of a pipeline. Um, it used to be you'd go to airborne school prior to ranger assessment and selection. And then they were finding out the dudes grabbed the ranger contracts just to get the airborne school and they'd quit. So they switched it. So now you go to RASP right after your initial uh, initial training. And after you pass that, you go to airborne school, which is uh, three weeks. It's a pretty, pretty simple course, really not too hard, just long and kind of silly. Um, but everyone in regiment is... Uh, is a static line jump qualified. You're getting all this good training, picking up lots of valuable qualifications. Is there much of a churn? Because I'd imagine a lot of the, a lot of the qualifications experience you get in the Rangers is, has got quite a lot of uh, cachet in the private security industry. Um, I, don't, I don't think as much. Um, I don't, you don't really hear about people quitting just to go contract necessarily because there's, there's a lot of those contracting companies have a high high degree of because there are so many qualified candidates they're like all right we want a minimum of like six years which is you know about about average i would say churn rate you know and then the uh the dudes that want to try out for other units as well like ranger regiment gives a solid foundation for uh going to sf or trying out for for a tier one unit so is that what in your opinion makes a ranger what are the characteristics required and how, well, probably touched this last part already, but how hard is the transition from the, the RASP to serving in the regiment? Sure. So I think that the, the big defining characteristic of a ranger is the fact that we're masters at the basics. And we, we call them the big five. So marksmanship, mobility, medical, physical fitness, and then small unit tactics. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And the other thing that sets them apart is the Ranger Creed, which is you recite that every day in Ranger School and RASP, and uh, you kind of internalize it and live by it. And he's just incredibly competent and capable at everything that he does or learns. 
and to succeed, you know, you, you got to not have any kind of quit in you because um, it's going to be found out at some point. You need to be confident and you also need to be teachable and be good at PT. Um, if you can't keep up, it's, it's going to be a hard time for you. But you also have to be pretty intelligent as well. You can't just be a, we call them uh, strong rangers. Like you got strong rangers and you got smart rangers, but you, you got to be both. You can't just be a, a strong ranger. You got to be able to, to think through and not just necessarily blindly follow orders. Sometimes you got to, obviously, you know, if you're a lower enlisted, but it, it helps if everyone is a, is a thinking member of the assault force. Um, but we're all three of us grinning there as you're saying that. It's for civilians who are listening. You can get a strong soldier, fit soldier easily, and you can get an intelligent soldier quite easily. But getting a f- strong, fit, intelligent soldier, it's not, you know, without being, I'm not trying to disparage soldiers as a, as a profession, but no, it can be an elusive combination, I would say. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, it is It is hard. And uh, I think RASP and then just the lifestyle um, does well to... Uh, to at least develop those capabilities or not capabilities per se, but bring out those traits in someone. Um, so if you're, you know, a little bit weaker on the, on the strength side, oh, you'll make sure to, to get that fixed up. And then if you're uh, not as intelligent, like they're going to make sure they, they teach you how to learn um, as it were. So as far as like the transition from RASP, we, yeah, like I talked a little bit about it before, um, but like the op tempo is just, high speed at all times it's breakneck and uh you don't you're kind of i filmed a podcast last night with some other dudes and they mentioned and kind of described it as like regiment is like this train that's going and you just got to jump on and hold on for dear life um because it's going it's going regardless and they're not going to slow down for you at all um and some dudes just can't handle it and being a ranger private is incredibly difficult because while you're trying to learn your job you've got a huge spotlight on yourself being the new guy. So like you're messing up, you're making mistakes. Everyone's kind of looking at you to see if you're going to be, you know, quitter, uh, you know, lazy. And everyone in the platoon that you show up to has already deployed together, has already been through all the hard stuff together. And they are very tight and cohesive and they don't like it when someone else shows up and, uh, and tries to integrate themselves in. So it's kind of, you kind of just, you know, get hazed a bit. Um, and they're they're looking to to find out if you're going to be a weak link, but as as soon as you pass Ranger School and as soon as you do a couple training events and like show that you're you're competent and uh, can keep up, like it kind of relaxes a little bit until you get to Ranger School. Um, but it, it varies, you know, depending on who you are as a person and how how capable you are. And I think all that can be summed up in the Ranger's motto, which I am not even going to attempt to pronounce because it's Latin. So I'll leave it over to you, Zach. What is the Ranger's motto? Because I think it pretty much sums up what you've discussed there. Yeah, sua sponte. So uh, it's a legal term meaning of one's own accord. And it basically means that like part of it is like it's a completely voluntary unit to be in. Like no one's forcing you. Like there's no uh, there's no ranger draft or anything like that. It's uh, you got to volunteer three times. Once for the army, once for airborne school, and uh, once for regiment. And on the other side of that is... Uh, you have to be able to make the right decisions and choose the right actions without someone holding your hand all the time or, or telling you what to do. And that's that's what makes us, you know, another reason that makes us unique. So, Zach, with regards to weapons and equipment, so you have to access to a greater variety than, say, the Airborne or 
uh, or the other regular troops? Because we are, you know, a specialized role, like we do have access to a larger variety of weapons in our arms room, especially, you know, like attachments, like we've got the whole, the whole suite of, of special operations kind of equipment, you know, M4s, we've got long barrel or not, not necessarily long barrel, but, you know, regular length and then shorty length. So like 10 and a half inch M4s. We have access to the uh, the SCAR weapon system, both the uh, the 5.56 and the 7.62 versions. And then our weapon squads are outfitted with the uh, the lighter M240, so the M240 Lima, and then Mark 48s, which are basically a, an upsized and a 7.62 saw. And then we have a multitude of optic choices for those. We have uh, the LCAN, Optic Series, uh, Aim Points, EOTEX. Um, whereas regular units might only have, you know, ACOGs or, uh, you know, just basic, uh, red dots. Um, and you can, you can set your, your gun up however you want. Really, there's not a defined unit SOP. So there's a lot more, a leeway for you as a, as a shooter to, to really pick your, Individual. pick what you want, which is really, really cool. Um, and then as far as like the personal, was- go ahead. Yeah, I was just thinking, what about support weapons, mortars and stuff like that? Do the rangers deploy with all that sort of mm-hmm. weapons as well? We have uh, we have our own internal mortar platoons, and we have 60-millimeter mortars, 81-millimeter mortars, and the, uh, I want to say it's the 120-millimeter 20 millimeter mm-hmm. as well. But uh, that's a that's a separate, um, I guess, separate from the line companies. But they they'll get attached out to us when we de- when we deploy, and they we've I've done a little bit of cross training with mortars, um, but nothing too nothing too crazy. I definitely couldn't set one up on my own. Yeah, as far as like personal equipment goes, we've got our own uh, issuing facility. Um, like you've got the regular army uh, issuing facility where we get some stuff, and then we have the ranger issuing facility, and that's where we get like the cool guy gear, you know, cryo uniforms, cry kit, and plate carriers. Opscore helmets, Mr. Ranch rucksacks, and a lot of like specialized gear that um, just regular units either have to pay for on your own or you don't get at all. Uh, that's pretty good. And one thing we didn't mention, I think, well, I don't, I don't think it came out that well, but um, you, know, you can walk into a recruiting office in the States and say, I want to be a ranger, and you can go straight in from, from the street. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I did. I, uh, I joined while I was still in high school. Technically, um, I had my parents sign early entry waivers um, because I, I knew that's what I wanted to do. So I was, yeah, like you said, straight off the street. That's what makes it so unique is because you can get to a a tier two unit and you know at the very start of your career. And you mentioned earlier on, Zach, that you're pretty much focused on getting in the regiment, doing a, a tour in the regiment, and then. Uh, leaving essentially was there any time when you were in the rangers that you thought do you know what i could make a career out of this or was your mind pretty much on just having that experience and then getting out and doing something else with your life uh, i mean i think that for me it was i went in with the intention of like not serving the full 20 and then as i was in i was like you know i, I kind of really enjoy this um i don't necessarily want to stay in regiment forever um so i came to a decision point in uh 2021 where it's like all right i either need to get out or I need to um, try out for for one of the tier one units, and I, I came to the conclusion that trying out for one of those would be—I wouldn't say a gamble um, because it is something worth doing, but it was it would add more time onto onto my timeline. And I just decided at the end of the day to uh, 
that I was fortunate to have done what I did. And, uh, I got, you know, the full experience out of it, I felt, and I decided to, to leave the service. I'd imagine for a, a guy who's been in the Rangers quite a while, uh, making that, if you want to be a career soldier, moving back to a conventional army unit would be a massive culture shock. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you don't really see it too much, like, for, <laughs> for that reason. Like, this, after you've had a taste of the good life, it's really, really difficult to want to choose um, to go to a regular unit. And regiment's unique in the fact that you don't have, like, a a maximum amount of time that you can serve. Like you can, you can do your entire career pretty much um, serving with the Ranger Ranger regiment. Well, I saw a guy could join as a private and leave as a, 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 like a battalion sergeant major, that type of thing. There is, there's a, there's something unique with a regiment in the terms of one of the charters is that the intent is for you to serve and then take your, your knowledge to the rest of the army. So there are a few points in your career where you do what's called broadening time. And you'll do like a year or two max with uh, with another unit, um, usually in kind of an instructor role, um, never as in like a just a line role, but usually as like an instructor of some sort. And that's really your only taste of outside uh, regimental kind of life is when you do that it, around, you know, uh, staff sergeant E6 time is when you that usually happens before you come back and, uh, and become a platoon sergeant. Yeah, we, we did the same, didn't we? In the British yeah. Army, we get postings, spend two years with another unit and come back to our unit. Um, both me and Colin have done that, uh, yeah. which was... It, it, Challenging in its own right? right? Yeah, massively, but... Uh, yeah, massively. We went to... Uh, me and Kev both served time in like a, a National Guard unit, if you like, like, the British equivalent of what we call our reserve forces. So, but uh, you, you use the term broadening your experience. It certainly does that, and it yeah, it does gives you a greater depth of how to deal with people of different capabilities. I think as well, which when you're operating in a high performance unit, you, it's never normally an issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you decide to get out then, Zach, and now you've got your own business line and podcast tube. So podcast uh, on YouTube. So basically, we we'll start off then. What inspired you to, well, what is your business line? What inspired you to take that up? Yeah, so I uh, currently run a tactical gear, small tactical gear manufacturing company um, called Rockwell Designs. I started it while I was still in um, during 2020 and like the the pandemic, um, just because we had a lot of downtime from work. And I was overseas actually when I, when I had the idea. And I kind of came up with these designs for some chest rigs for uh, Kalashnikov and uh, like 7.62 NATO pattern rifles, something a little different than uh, your regular 5.56 or M4 style gear that is, is well, uh, that market's well saturated. So I saw a little bit of a niche that I could get into myself. Um, so I drew up all these designs. I bought a sewing machine and a bunch of material. Um, and then when we came back, we had a lot of uh, downtime due to us having to quarantine after being deployed. So we did quarantine for two weeks and then we had two weeks of block leave. And then we had another two week quarantine. And I was like, I can't just sit and do nothing at home for this. Like I need to, to capitalize on this somehow. And that's kind of how it got started was that. And then uh, it's really kind of took off this year after I got out and uh, I've been, been sewing and making, making product in a, and releasing that pretty consistently throughout the year. And 
so yeah, going to take a little bit of a pause just because I've reached a little bit of uh, tracer burnout, as it were, on that. Um, so I know she went for a lot of night. So, sorry, I know she went looking at your website. You've gone for a lot, lot of uh, nine millimeter rigs. I noticed. Uh, yeah, I've got a pistol caliber carbine or you know SMG MP5 style um, rigs as well, and some decent Rhodesian camouflage as well. <laughs> Always looks good. I, I don't think I've done the yet. I've got I've got some ready to go um, for when I do decide to start up again. Um, but that's, oh, okay. that's a commonly requested pattern. <laughs> yeah, but the Rhodesian so, camouflage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not those not those nutcracker shorts though. <laughs> oh, I've got <laughs> some of those. I've, I, I like. I, I've, I've, in, in some of my videos, I'm wearing those. But uh, that's a daring look. <laughs> we uh, we did an exchange with Anglico, which is a US Marine Corps naval gunfire, and uh, they took us out to Puerto Rico to do some naval gunfire, and it was red hot. And we had our jungle fatigues on, and these US Marines said, "We'll give you guys some shorts if you want." And we thought, "Yeah, okay, you know, we'll go out there on t-shirt, shorts, and jungle boots." I'm not joking. They turned up with these shorts, man, that just barely covered your ass cheeks. <laughs> 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 No, we'll draw a line at them, guys. Thanks very much. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's, uh, those are called ranger panties. or uh, That's what we, we used to wear those as our <laughs> uniform, like the super short, silky shorts, and then they have the uh, like the ranger scroll and tab on them. Um, I, I have a bunch of them, honestly. Like I wear them as, as underwear um, because you can, you can <laughs> downgrade. If you ever got to drop your pants, like it's still technically <laughs> a short. So it's like it's just riding that line, though, of like almost being too much to wear out in public. Um, yeah, absolutely. That's funny. So what I am, um, you've, you've jumped in and set up your own business. And I think a lot of former soldiers sort of underestimate what they can bring to the civilian world. What advice would you give somebody who's wanting to set up their own business directly leaving the forces? I would definitely say try and try and figure it out while you're still in, like uh, maximize your weekends. Like don't just, you know, turn into another booze and booze and soldier on the weekends. Like, try and develop a, a skill set, you know, that you can leverage outside and kind of get it to a point where you're competent and capable enough before you get out. Um, definitely don't get out and like try and figure it out then um, is what I would say. Either get out and like work a regular job and develop it at the same time or try and like nurture it to a point where it will be profitable by the time that you leave. Um, and if I were to go back and do it again, I probably would have picked something that has a little bit higher return on investment and return on time. Um, something that you can, you can more effectively freelance with and make a, a little bit more money with without a, as much overhead as a traditional business. Not knocking, you know, brick and mortar businesses at all, but it is kind of a, a pain when I want to go and do stuff, but I'm tied to, you know, a physical location to, to be running my business. Um, so like learning like marketing skills or, you know, digital kind of skills, I think would be a better, better return on investment um, for dudes that are looking to work for themselves. Um, that's kind of my two cents is I'm making that shift towards that myself um, to where I can work from anywhere with an internet connection and a laptop. Yeah. And don't underestimate yourself. Like, even though like you, if you're like, you know, just infantry, like, you still learn a lot of, of soft skills as we call them, you know, like being able to handle a huge amount of stress, which running a business is a huge amount of stress. Um, being able to communicate effectively, being able to 
you know, see hard things through. Like whenever I get like stumped in something, it's like, oh, at least I'm not in ranger school. Like at least I'm not, you know, running on one hour of sleep and out in the woods eating, you know, MREs, uh, not showering. Like it can always be worse. So like you can use your time in and use it as like a reflection point or something you can look back on and, and gather strength from. It's like, all right, I've, I've done all these hard things in my past. This isn't that hard in comparison. I can keep going. Yeah, as Kevin and I talked about this, I think soldiers, former soldiers, are too, nobody's interested if you can uh, sh- commit a headshot at 600 metres or call in an airstrike. It's that soft skills you're after, and it's translating them as the, uh, the important bit. And I think a lot of soldiers get that terribly wrong and, and they'll move out and seem a bit puzzled as why nobody's interested in what they did. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a confidence thing when you leave one sort of, especially if you've been in a long time, you, you lack confidence perhaps when you leave because you're unsure about, you know, if you've done 20 odd years in the forces, you institutionalize, you, you, you're happy where everything is and then all of a sudden you're in the, a wider world. Most people aren't that interested in your, your bore stories as we call them. And, uh, you've got to try and reinvent yourself a little bit and find those trans, those skills that are transferable, which is always difficult and try and convert them into a language that they can understand and don't get frustrated that they don't understand you. Yeah, which they do invariably. Yeah. So, Zach, you've got a podcast, the Danger Ranger podcast. Can you tell people a little bit about that and where they can find it? Yeah, sure. So uh, I started a podcast on a kind of kind of a whim. Like it's always a joke among a lot of a lot of my friends. Like, oh, let's do it. Let's start a podcast. And I was like, what if I actually did though? So I kind of you know did it on a whim. I bought some equipment and. Uh, I just started talking about, you know, my experiences and it, it kind of blew up from there. Um, and then in September, I did like a, a daily video challenge where I recorded not necessarily podcasts, but, you know, other ranger stories or, uh, you know, stuff that I was working on or going to the range and gained a lot of traction doing that, actually. And uh, so I'm going to continue on doing that. Um, you can find it. Yeah, like you said, the Danger Ranger podcast. I think if you just search that on YouTube um should pop up um and then i have a couple instagram pages my business page is at rockwell designs actual and then my personal one is at the zach red and i'll post links on the show notes uh, uh when we release this podcast as well so Appreciate you can directly link to, to zach's social media stuff well we come to that point of the podcast as usual we finish off with desert island dits which is obviously zach's Choice of book, his film, and luxury item. So for this episode, Zach, what have you chosen? All right. So for books, I'm going to have to go with probably my favorite book of all time, uh, Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy, um, which is a, uh, a novel about a gang of scalp hunters on the Texas-Mexico border in the 1800s. Um, kind of a dark book, uh, but it's one that's very well written, has a lot of layers to it, and... I honestly, you know, have probably read it more than a couple dozen times at this point. So having that would be cool. Uh, film choice. This one's a hard one. I, I got a lot of favorites, um, but it's probably have to be Heat, um, which is a heist movie with uh, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Val Kilmer. Um, some good gunfights in that for anyone who hasn't seen it. Um, they actually use a portion of that movie to to teach or like to demonstrate like proper bounding techniques and uh, mag changes and such. And luxury you know item. Who choreographed that, Zach? I think it you was know a who Brit. Choreographed. 
Andy McNabb of Bravo Two Zero fame. Okay. X two two SAS. Yeah. No, so, he, he did a great job. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a really good film. If anybody hasn't seen it, it's it's really good. That last scene at the end is is pretty cool. Mm, yeah, they're making a, a Heat Two, which uh, I read the book, and hopefully it's as uh, well produced as the first. Um, and if then Adam Pacino and. Sorry, if they're using Pacino and uh, De Niro, they're going to be wheelchairs. Nah, I, don't, I don't think so because they're all they're all old. Um, Val Kilmer can barely talk too, so um, yeah. Yeah, I think true. they're uh, going to have to do a little bit of a recast, unfortunately, which is fine. Like that happens because it is an older older movie. Um, Plus, they're all killed in Heat at the end anyway. <laughs> That's a good point. Well, they'll have a, they'll have a problem bring them back. <laughs> well, it's interesting because they do uh, in the book, I'm not going to spoil it for anyone, but it's like partially before the events of the actual movie and then there's there's stuff in the in the post part of it. So they would maybe have to bring some of the some of the dead back, but because interest, I listened to quite a few books on Audible and I saw Heat 2 advertised in Audible. So would you recommend it to as a book yeah. to listen to as well? Yeah, it was good. I I couldn't put it down. Um, I'm sure the audiobook's great, but I would I would I would definitely recommend it. If you liked Heat, you'll you'll appreciate Heat too. And and like I'm sorry, I, I, jo- I jumped in there and interrupted you. No, nah, well, <laughs> iPod loaded with music. Like I'm a big fan of music, and uh, you know, I feel like that would that would help out being stuck on an island. iPods? <laughs> so do we still have iPods? <laughs> I think I, I think so. I mean. I would say phone, you know, some some kind of device that uh that holds a large amount of, of files. I'm not a technical um, expert, by the way. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah no Carly Wilstein. <laughs> so what sort of music would you have on it, Zach? Well, I'm a I like everything, honestly. Like I've got a, a wide variety. I like heavy metal. I like a little bit of country, some rap, um, classical. Like there's a there's a wide range. Um, my uh my playlists give people a little bit of whiplash because it'll go from like Slayer and then like to like Lana Del Rey or something. <laughs> I love it. Like about Lana, must admit. Carly, she's great. Your book. So to keep the uh, Ranger sort of theme going, my choice is Roberts Ridge by Malcolm McPherson, and uh, this operation took place in March two thousand and two during Operation Anaconda where small recce teams established observation posts in strategic locations in Afghanistan and directed U.S. air power against enemy targets. And during this op, a small U.S. force fought a 17-hour battle on the mountaintop of Takagar, which came also be known as Roberts Ridge. And this was fought in the winter at 10,000 feet, so they had altitude to contend with as well. And about 0100 hours on March the 4th, Razor 03, a U.S. Army MH-47E helicopter, tried to insert a team on top of the mountain, unaware it was an enemy stronghold. And you do a bit of digging behind the scenes now. It comes out that it's a bit like Arnhem in that uh, they had aerial photography of the mountaintop. They could visibly see positions and uh, enemy movement tracks between these positions, but somehow nobody clicked on that it was still heavily fortified and the mission went ahead uh, and with disastrous results. Um, So while the... Chopper was landed and was hit by RPG and gunfire, causing a US Navy SEAL Neil Roberts to fall from the helicopter. The crew managed to get the aircraft out and made an emergency landing about three miles away, and uh, USAF Combat Controller Technical Sergeant John Chapman began coordinating close air support in the rescue effort to retrieve Roberts, who'd fallen out of the heli. Another helicopter, Razor 4, picked up the team and took them back to rescue Roberts on a 10,000-foot mountaintop. 
So a lot of this footage, some of it's on YouTube as well, which is quite unusual. Mm. Uh, and, and you can see uh, Chapman uh, leaving the helicopter and charging up the hill through the snow. This is obviously from a drone and, and taking the fight to the enemy while under heavy fire from three directions. Uh, he killed two enemy in a, in a fortified position uh, and uh, he returned fire, killing them both. Uh, but almost immediately, the team began taking machine gun fire from another fortified position 12 metres away. But Chapman deliberately moved into open to gauge the new enemy position. And it was then he was hit and critically injured but continued fighting. But for an over an hour, he engaged multiple enemy fighters before being fatally wounded. And he's credited with saving the lives of his teammates and was awarded the, presumably, the Medal of Honour and promoted to Master Sergeant. And this is where the Rangers came in. Uh, the QRF Heli Razor 1 arrived, kind of Ranger team and four Air Force personnel. And again, as it was landing, it was hit with multiple RPGs and small arms fire that immediately killed and wounded several of those on board. Uh, and they continued the fight on uh, for another, uh, basically overnight. And then the book, again, comes back to that fitness piece, which always strikes me in dismounted small, small team operations. There's a Delta Force guy led a, a number of rangers up that mountainside to get to that position, and they're ploughing through knee-deep snow at altitude. You know, and, and the description of that going up there is quite graphic, and how much, even though those guys are extremely fit, how much actually took it out of them. Um, and about 8.15pm the, the following day, helicopters came in and managed to extract them. Uh, at one point they wouldn't send extra helicopters in because they were deemed that it was too dangerous and they might lose more helicopters so those guys were basically fighting overnight in hellish conditions against a very determined enemy uh, and an after action view was able to identify comms and command problems that dogged the effort from the beginning uh, and there was a re- as a result there was a revision on how such operation would be conducted in the future uh, there are multiple bravery awards and uh, certainly the Rangers lived up to the motto, Sua Sponte. Is that right, Zach? Sua Sponte? Sua Sponte, yeah. So Sua Sponte that we described earlier on. So again, Zach, is that a, a battle that's discussed much within the Ranger battalions or it just it's become a focus of the book and it's just sort of just there in the background somewhere? No, absolutely. Um, so the the Rangers that actually were on that QRF were from the company that I was with. And we remember them. We call them our Airborne Rangers in the Sky. So we lost uh, Sergeant Bradley Cross, Corporal Matthew Commons, and Specialist Mark Anderson uh, during that battle. Um, so it's it's something that we keep, you know, we're very, like I, I said earlier, we're very proud of our lineage. And we, we try and remember the, uh, at least the names of the fallen. Um, you know, as, as the years go on, you know, maybe details of the battle fade as people that were directly involved, you know, get out of the service and stuff. But it's... Uh, you know, it is something that we we do try and remember and honor, you know, the sacrifice to those men during during these kind of, you know, large profile or higher profile events. Yeah, it's well worth a read that book because it does, as a graphic description, some really hard soldier. So what's your choice, Kev? My choice is uh, Fergal Keane's book, Letters Home. Fergal Keane's the reporter for the BBC. Uh, and in his book, he talks about, he, he did a, he did a book earlier called Letter to Daniel, which is his son. And he talks about his experiences as a journalist in war zones. And Letters Home very much is a collection of that. Again, talking about Bosnia, Sierra Leone, uh, other parts in Africa. Um, but leading on to that, um, he recently did a documentary as well. He was going back to, he was going to do some reporting on the Ukraine war, but he was talking about PTSD. Because as we forget about reporters sometimes, 
they're in the thick of it. They see as much as we do in the armed forces. And accumulatively, they are affected by what they see. And he, he, he describes PTSD in his book as well, or the, the stresses of, of, um, of what he's seen and how he's, how he's dealing with it today and how he's still able to go back to places like Ukraine and such like. But um, obviously the, the trauma of everything he saw and um, trying to open up to people. Because as a journalist, they're exactly the same boat, I suppose, as we. No one wants to admit that they're having problems because that's his job. And he wants to yeah. report. And, and like servicemen, it can become addictive because obviously operations uh, are also addictive. And that's something I think we're all aware of, that you always want to go on another operation and another deployment. And you don't mm-hmm. realize you're addicted to it, but you are. And you miss it when you don't go. And you're always thinking, oh, someone else has gone. You're always thinking, well, it's our turn. Do you know if that makes any sense? So I thought his book was quite good on that. And uh, like I say, the, the recent documentary, he opened up about it and it, it is brutally honest. And it, it, it's it's worth watching the documentary. It's worth reading those books as well. Yeah, I saw that documentary. It was, mm. uh, it was really good. actually hit home quite well. So we're approaching the end of the year. Uh, Zach's episode will be out in November. Uh, so you'll be listening to it in November. But I just thought I'd give a heads up to listeners on where we're going next. So we've got a... Royal Engineers podcast come up, Kev. What's that one about? Yeah, it's Royal Engineers. It's a specialist search. It starts off a little bit of history about the Royal Engineers, talking about their conventional role, but how they've evolved into the 21st century. And they provide some very niche capabilities, especially on things on counterterrorism and other capabilities on on searches. So they, they provide a lot more support to the civilian law enforcement agencies than they ever did before. So hopefully we'll Great. get an insight into that. Cool. And we've also got uh, Liz McConaughey coming on. Liz is our first, uh, shamefully, our first female uh, service person to come on the podcast. And she was the first Chinook crew chief, served multiple tours in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, and it'll be interesting to hear about her experiences uh, with that regard. She was also on the medical evacuation teams in Afghanistan. Uh, so some, you know, those teams out there did some really great job and it'll be interesting to hear about account from that. A bit of light relief coming up to Christmas. We've got James Lee who wrote a book called Licking the Taliban's Flip-Flop. Um, and <laughs> James had one of the less, um, less, I'm trying to think of a great word, less, well, help me out here, Kev. He, he was a mover in the, the Royal Logistics Corps. So he it, worked at, Less glamorous sort of role in operational environments. That's the one. Less glamorous, but no less essential, because not everybody can be in the SAS or, or whatever. So uh, James's book's fantastic read. We'll be doing reading expert, excerpts from that, and we'll be talking about his book and some of the absurdities of being in the army and operations. But that's it for another episode. So, Zach, thanks for coming to the podcast, mate, and enlighten us about the Rangers. It was a really good listen. Thank you. Absolutely. No, thank you, Zach. Thank it was you an honor. And uh, another thanks to our listeners again for the continued support and suggestions. We've just achieved a landmark of 100,000 downloads. Uh, we've got a bit to catch up with Zach on YouTube because he's far better looking than us and he, he puts his face on there. We're, we're too old and ugly to do that. But we've got 40,000 views on our YouTube channel, so we're, we're doing not too bad. I'll post links to Zach's YouTube channel, company website, all the rest of it on our show notes so people can click easily to that and look him up. 
go have a look at his YouTube stuff. It's really good. I learned a lot on that as well, prep for this uh, podcast. You can find us on all the usual suspects, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. If you download us from iTunes or uh, Spotify, please give us a review. That helps us spread the news about the podcast. And finally, thanks again to Nick Beale for his continued support to the series and offering technical help for his company, ISAR. And we'll see you next time on The Unconventional Soldier. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.